we could end the pandemic in 30 days, no problem. And I'm going to show you how today. But alas, until that happens, the world of work remains a very dangerous place to be, as I discuss today what is facing teachers and poultry workers. This is Jonathan Tassini, and it's great to have you with us for our show for November 18th, 2020. Now, before I get to my chats with my guest today, I wanted to share with you some meta thoughts about this podcast. I'm actually considering ending it after four years on the audio side and the newer parallel video show, which I launched a couple of months ago. Not because there's a shortage of material to continue to talk about, nor do I think that this is anything but a high-quality effort on the content and technical side. And I still feel that what this podcast gives to people is solid, important ideas about pretty important stuff done through rational, engaged discussion and debate, not crazy, unhinged rants. It's simply this. I'm no rich kid or trust fund person, and I've been financing this out of my own pocket for the past four years, meaning paying for a professional editor who has done a consistently great job, along with a more recent addition of a part-time social media person to promote the show. I've made regular appeals to financially support the podcast, emphasizing that folks can do what they can, even if it's just five or 10 bucks a month. Now we've gotten a small number of supporters and I'm grateful for their support. This isn't a criticism, but it is reality. Labor needs to be paid for. That's a truth, and we are going to have to figure out how to finance this, and I'll talk about this more down the road. So on that note, you can help the show in two ways. Sign up for the show at YouTube, The Working Life Show with Jonathan Tassini. That helps us spread the word in the video world, and of course, become a sponsor in one of two ways. Go over to workinglife.org, look for the podcast tab, and follow the link over to Patreon, where you can become a one-time or regular sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. Or we've also partnered up with Act Blue, so you can go over to Act Blue, look for the Working Life Show with Jonathan Tassini, and there you can also become a regular sponsor of the show or a one-time sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. Just about everywhere any of you live, the pandemic is out of control, or at least surging again to levels that are meaning more lockdowns, going back to past restrictions like no in-dining in restaurants or schools shutting back down. The virus itself is only partially directly responsible for the death and sickness of so many people. And of course, the implosion of the economy that has actually led to more sickness and death and shorter lifespans now and in the future. Millions of people who lost their jobs and savings are going to be sicker because they lost employer health care or they were too afraid to get regular care and in a bigger sense, being driven into bankruptcy, losing your savings, your home, and looking at years of economic struggles will mean for many shorter lives. This crisis isn't principally about the virus. It's about blind ideology. Now put aside for a moment two very important pieces of that ideology, and that is the ideology of a president and his enablers. Perhaps ideology is too kind a word to use for Trump because it implies some thought out belief system beyond pure narcissism. But those folks basically lied about and denied that the pandemic was upon us. And then second, the stupidity of the same folks who encouraged millions of people to not 
wear masks. The simplest and most effective thing we could do to stop the pandemic until a vaccine arrives. Now, I put those two things aside to focus on one central idea. Ideology is in the way of a simple plan to end the pandemic in 30 days. Yes, 30 days. Lock down the country and pay everyone to stay at home. I made this argument many months ago, and I'm just resurrecting this again because the debate about a stimulus is on the agenda again. And again, I say, because for months, Republicans have basically said, fuck you to the entire country when it comes to aiding the people. Back in the spring, Representative Pramila Jayapal in the House and Bernie Sanders and several other senators in the Senate proposed something simple pay people up to $90,000 a year until the unemployment rate declines below 7% for three straight months. This is economic and medical logic. Pay people enough money so they can pay bills like rent and food, and that allows them to stay home, either because they are sick or simply to allow them to lock down and not go to work for a number of weeks until the so-called curve is dramatically going down and flat. Jayapal's bill was not included in the $3 trillion package passed in May by the House because the House leadership, Nancy Pelosi and her crew, did not support it. They embraced a completely insufficient, pathetic monthly payment that would not cover people's real expenses. And I think the failure to do so, to be very bold about this, hurt the Democrats in the past election. If people don't have money in their pockets, they won't stay home and they won't stop going to work because unlike the billionaires like Jeff Bezos, who made plenty of money during the pandemic, people need that weekly pay to spend on basics like food. Workers need direct wage support. And they should not have to wait months to get even some of that money through a weak unemployment system, which has been imploding from the wave of applications, as you probably know. Now, part of Jayapal's proposal also had billions of dollars in it for states and local governments to keep people on their payrolls. And it also covered the health care costs for all of those people who lost their employer-based health care coverage. Yes, that's another argument for Medicare for all, of course. Now, this isn't just a moral argument. It's a simple economic argument. Whether we like it or not, two-thirds of the economy is powered by consumer spending. And yes, that has a lot of downsides, which I've talked about before, but let's just deal with the reality today. And you can really go big now, spend lots of money, because interest rates are at record low levels. So any borrowing is going to be done on the cheap and will easily pay off down the road in security for millions of people. A full year of wage support might cost around $1.3 trillion. Let's just say, make it an even $2 trillion. Compare that to months and months of wages lost, industries crippled, suppressed economic activity, or the long-term effects of millions of kids falling behind in school because they are trapped at home trying to learn online. I would even think it's worth considering adding another trillion dollars to make small businesses whole up to, say, $500,000 for the 30 days. By small business, I mean any business having to shut down 
whose annual net revenues are up to, say, $6 million and employ fewer than 500 people, which means forget about it, Amazon or Walmart. This money's not for you. Jeff Bezos and the Waltons can pay for what they might lose over 30 days out of the change that they take out on put on their nightstands that's in their pockets. So you basically are covering small businesses for lost revenues for 30 days. The point is to get people to buy into a nationwide lockdown to suppress the pandemic. It's a bargain and it will save lives. And I would propose this now because Georgia. Obviously, this idea of paying people to stay home up to $90,000 a year is dead on arrival in the Senate, where multimillionaire Mitch McConnell and his mostly equally rich caucus only care about confirming right-wing judges and continuing to enable Trump's unhinged post-election behavior. It's certainly not on their agenda to help millions of people who are close to destitution. But what if folks took this up and campaigned loudly across the country, and especially in Georgia, where the statewide 14-day average of new cases has risen more than 40%. It's a winning issue and a motivation to vote. Get rid of McConnell and get paid to stay home and be safe. Now, I mentioned kids and schools a moment ago. High up on the list of complete and utter chaos and cluelessness has been the way in which political leaders at the local and state level have mishandled how to safely reopen schools so teachers and kids don't get sick. My view is it can't be done when the pandemic is raging. And the only way to do it, even when the pandemic starts to decline, is with a huge investment in schools, like increasing smaller classroom settings, which we should do anyway, frankly. I wanted to get a sense of the current state of play. So why not look at what's happening in Arizona? where voters just approved a new tax hike to fund education, and at the same time, the infections are in a steep rise. The Arizona Education Association has just posted a public petition to the governor to enact life-saving measures to make sure that schools can try to reopen safely. And you can find the petition at the AEA's website. That's ArizonaAE.org. So to talk about the status, it's great to welcome in Joe Thomas, the president of the Arizona Education Association. So on this podcast, Joe, we've been covering the pandemic since actually it started focusing, in fact, what's happening to frontline workers. And we've talked to poultry workers, retail workers, bus drivers, to transit workers. And we've done a lot as it relates to teachers and I wonder, first of all, taking a step back and looking at the macro picture, it seems to me that uh, what's happening to frontline workers, and I use that broadly defined, teachers, healthcare workers, anybody who is dealing with the public, however you define it, it seems to me there's a combination of three things going on that's threatening frontline workers. There's greed, which is perhaps more in the private sector. Certainly, this is why tens of thousands of poultry and meat processing workers have gotten sick. There's ideology and then there's incompetence. And I wonder of those three elements, what are you seeing in your state, in your experience in the past few months? What elements have combined to really put your teachers, your members at risk? 
Well, I, I would say it's incompetence. It's, it's, a, it's a refusal of, of our governor to lead. And there, there, I think there's also across the three of those ideas that you put out, there's a devaluing of the people that are doing the work and there's mm -hmm. an expectation that the work is still gonna be done. We want to be on our campuses. We want to be in our classrooms, but the campuses and the classrooms have to be safe for our students and have to be safe for the adults that work there. And if we can't get that investment, which is half of the problem, to where we can find those creative ideas of spacing our students out, of maybe adjusting the schedule a little bit, but still meeting the needs for them to have a, a quality public education. If, if we can't have those expect, if we can't have that support, then we'll never meet the expectations of the public. The second issue that we're really seeing is people are wanting us to be in school and they're wanting us to, to be at an increased risk, but they're not willing to um, adopt the behaviors back home and in their own backyards that will suppress the spread of this virus. And so we're still having slumber parties, we're still having all kinds of um, sports and practices um, and, and without any kind of um, uh, thought of how do we, how do we suppress, how do we reduce the risk to suppress the spread? And it makes you feel like, again, you're devalued, but your work is still needed. And it's causing a lot of educators to think, this is not the profession for me right now. And we're, we're really facing, um, a, a, I would say, an increased number of people that probably will not come back uh, for the next semester. So there's actually an exodus from the profession that you're seeing. I do believe that we are going to see an increased number. We have more people uh, that, that speak to us in surveys that talk about the considerations they're having around that, whether that's just for the rest of this year or if that's for a couple of years to take time off. But they have family members that they would be putting at risk or they themselves have health conditions uh, that put them at risk if they're, uh, if they're in some of these classrooms or if they're the ones driving the bus or if they're the ones cleaning our campuses. And it seems so obvious to me that there's such easy things to do when it comes to school. And in some way, from my perspective, some of this is about the lack of investment in schools going back many years. For example, class size. The obvious solution, for example, in terms of safety for teachers would be to have smaller class size where students and teachers could actually practice some social distancing. But then you layer on that the need for masks and some of the other investments. And that's why I often think, especially when it comes to education and teachers, that this really is about ideology. I mean, you do have a Republican governor and frankly, however, there are plenty of Democratic governors in other states who are not necessarily doing much better. But let's focus on your state. It seems to me that this is wrapped up in the ideology of a governor who doesn't see the value of the teachers and perhaps is frankly anti-union too. Well, he, he certainly is, and, and, and so much so, there's such consistency that we can trust that the governor, Governor Ducey, will not support us. Um, he has had every opportunity to institute the, the basic pieces of a plan, and, and we've, we've reached out to him multiple times to try to get him to take a leadership role and institute a, a statewide mask mandate for our schools. Um, to be, if you're gonna be on campus, if you're gonna be in the buses, we have to take this basic safety measure. He, he won't even do that through the end of the year. Um, we've not seen any kind of um, uh, funding from the state to make sure that um, our air conditioners and ventilation systems are up to, up to code, that they're working as efficiently and effectively as they can, and that we can um, bring in the more high-end, more expensive filters to use in those systems to where we can at least be saying, well, we're circulating the air the way the CDC says we should. 
oftentimes what you see is you see educators buying their own PPE. You see educators that are bringing in, just like they do for their, their students, they're spending their own money purchasing the safety equipment that the state should be providing for us. This undermines confidence and morale in educators that their community stands with them. And it becomes very, very frustrating. And that led me to the second point that I wanted to bring up. One of the great things that um, I remember back when you were doing the Red for Ed campaign, when you and I spoke, it's been now over two years. One of the great things that you did was you created a community coalition around the notion of education funding. And that happened, by the way, with the Red for Ed campaign in other states, mainly so-called red states, so-called more conservative states, although this election kind of scrambled all that definition up a little bit, right? I wonder if you're concerned that what the governor is doing intentionally or unintentionally is driving a little bit of a wedge between that great community support that you had between teachers and parents and other people in the community. Because yes, I get, and I have many friends who are tearing their hair out that their kids are at home, and you probably understand this too. They want their kids to be in school, partly for their sanity, but also for to make sure they get good education. So I wonder if you're concerned that that tension is being created by the governor, either intentionally or unintentionally. We're absolutely concerned about it. And, and when, when educators and parents stand together, we can do anything inside our schools. We can, we can end up with the public schools that our students deserve. And we saw that, quite frankly, in the Red for Ed movement. I think what has been missing a little bit is um, listening. Um, educators can understand a little bit of what parents are going through because many of us are parents. I have a, a, a sophomore in high school and I have two kids in college right now. College is entirely online. Uh, my son's school took a step back into a hybrid um, modality where he goes uh, two days a week uh, to his classes with about half of the students on campus and he's virtual the rest of the time. Before that, for, or for a few weeks straight, they were, they were fully back in. Um, so it, it does become disruptive, and, but we don't understand every personal story. And so educators have to listen to our parents. We have to understand how do we construct um, a school experience during um, crisis teaching that meets the needs of our students in the best ways that we can. And the two concerns that we see pop up in surveys out to parents, uh, overwhelmingly, they want their children to be safe and they don't want their children to fall behind academically. The story we have to tell parents and that we want them to listen to is we can provide a great education, but we have to be supported in the creative ways that we need to do it. And so it might not mean completely online, but it might mean a situation like my son is in where you may not be having your student go five days a week, or maybe they're going for shorter day periods, or maybe we have the high school students that are at home more days a week and our elementary students that are, are in school, but we have to be able to do it safely. We have to open up more classrooms. And quite frankly, we have to have um, educators that, that can safely report. Right now, when we have a quarantine, uh, that doesn't just impact our students, but it also impacts our educators as well. And I'm sorry about the dogs barking in the background. It's, you know, we're all it's in part of the Zoom world. It's okay. Right. It's part of our quarantine world. It's no problem. When we, do, when we do have quarantines of students, oftentimes our educators are caught up in that as well. We have a tremendous shortage of substitute teachers right now. Because if I'm an administrator calling out to you and I say, hey, I've just had a quarantine at my school. I've lost two teachers. I need you to come in and teach one of their courses. If you're a substitute teacher, you have to decide, is that a risk I will take? And so we have a lot of educators 
that are getting sick, that are being quarantined. It's creating another disruption um, to the, um, the continuity of the child's education. And so there are some districts that have just pulled back, um, some districts in Arizona that completely pulled back and said, we're gonna do the whole semester uh, online. And these are mainly high school districts, but we certainly have some elementary districts as well. And they may see, before all this is done, the, le uh, the least disruptions of anybody. Because when you get caught in this kind of back and forth, where for a month we're going to be fully in, and then a couple of weeks we're going to be in a hybrid, and then we spiked again in our, in our spread rate, and so now we're going to be fully online, every one of those transitions is difficult on students, especially the younger that they are. So the most important thing is the simplest thing, and it's what we all have to be doing at home. If we really want to keep our schools open, we have to take the precautions at home to mask up, to wash our hands, uh, and to socially distance. And Arizona did it really well uh, in the summer when the first time we hit a spike. And it looks like we're going to have to really double down and do it again. Well, in fact, we're in the midst in Arizona and certainly in many other states, but certainly in Arizona, an incredible spike and surge in infections and widespread community surge. And I'm wondering where the problem is partly the chaos that I mentioned. I happened to read a little bit in the Arizona newspapers that it seems like there's not a statewide plan, that a lot of the districts are doing one thing and then there's districts doing another thing. So some of that confusion, frankly, is laid at the feet of the administrators who probably want a statewide plan mm -hmm. that would come from the governor and have some coherence so everybody could be in on the same page, right? Absolutely. And what it what it causes when the governors will refuse to lead when 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 a governor like Governor Ducey remains silent on the issue and points to guidelines, which guidelines are good. They give you at least something. But what we really need are hard, fast mandates right now, especially when we're spiking uh, to make sure that everyone understands how serious the situation is. If the leader of your state is saying, well, you know, just follow these guidelines. It would be like all of the speed limits on the highway just being kind of suggestions. It becomes dangerous very, very quickly. And it creates more turmoil at the district level because again, once, once this has become politicized like it has become at the federal level and in, in, and in our state, quite frankly, as well, you have parents that firmly believe that this is a hoax, mm. that this is no worse than uh, the common cold, uh, that everybody's going to get it. And the faster everybody gets it, the faster we get through it with herd immunity. And you have parents that will say, my children are not going to go to school. I'm going to pull them out and put them in the online. And then their fight is kind of over in some cases because they're protecting their children, which of course is our, our, the first thing we all think about. What's left are the people that move back and forth when um, because the, the, as, as the cases increase and we see more of a spike, they become much more concerned and then they're willing to pull back and take it seriously. They're still fighting the ones that uh, are kind of the anti-vaccination crowd that just feel like, you know, get it, get over it. Your children aren't going to be that impacted by it when science doesn't agree with that at all. All mm -hmm. of that is happening at the local level. It is absolutely unnecessary and it's causing rifts that are going to take years to heal because the governor won't come out and say, here are the five things we're all going to do. And when the rate gets back down to here, we're going to back off these two. And when the rate gets a little bit further down, we're going to back off these other three. That shows that it's serious. We're all in it together and he's leading on it. But for whatever reason, he refuses to do it. And it's hurting educators. Now, you mentioned earlier in our conversation about the, if you will, the brain drain, teachers 
deciding that, hey, maybe I don't want to be in this profession because I'm putting myself at risk. I have a really good friend who's a teacher who is teaching online, and that's a whole nother challenge for teachers. And it's extremely frustrating, obviously, for students, but for teachers as well, trying to manage all these rooms on Zoom or whatever program they're using. I'm guessing they're putting aside the health effects, which are real serious, of not wanting to be in the physical space of school. There must be an incredible uh, pressure on teachers and frustration of trying to communicate and do real good teaching over online. It, it, it has it has really become um, an unbelievable pressure on educators, uh, both last spring and this year. And we really have three modes of teaching students right now. If you're in the classroom with your students and, and some of our schools are there and they say that that's the way they're going to finish the entire year, you're thinking about the air you breathe, the books and the counters that you touch, and the time that you have to clean those counters and desktops between a class exchange. You're thinking about things like that that you've never had to think of before. You're, you're having to monitor where your students are, if they're quarantined, if other people on campus uh, are exposed. You're having, to, you're having to crisis teach in person. It's very different than um, what, what we kind of signed on to do. People are finding creative ways to get through it. The second way is fully online. Um, not all educators were trained how to be an online uh, teacher. It is a whole different way of teaching. They've learned as fast as they could to be as effective as they could, as they can be. You still have students that don't log on during the day. They don't get their lessons, whether it's part of the interaction like we're doing right now, where it's live, or it's part of the sign on and, and, and read this uh, uh, passage or do these math problems and, and fill out and then submit your work it becomes very, very difficult that in that asynchronous learning environment. The worst mode is when we combine the two of those. And we have several districts in the state of Arizona that are, that are doing this. And this is the number one reason right now that we see educators losing the profession is when I have a roster of 35 high schoolers, which is not uncommon in Arizona, and 17 of them are showing up in class every day and 18 of them are online. And in the exact same moments of the day, I am teaching the students in my classroom and I'm standing in front of a camera trying to engage the half that's online. You teach differently in those different modalities and yet our educators are expected to prepare two lesson plans and deliver them simultaneously. They are at their wits end around this modality and what's driving it, and it is understandable, what's driving it is when parents made the decision around whether their students would come back or they would stay home they also wanted to keep those school rosters, those class rosters whole. And so mm -hmm. instead of you and I saying, well, one of us will be the online teacher and we'll take all of both of our students that are going to be online. And the other one of us will be the in-person teacher and we'll take both of all of our students that are going to be in person. Parents and some administrators said that would be too disruptive. Let's keep the kids together. I understand that, but it is absolutely crushing our educators that are caught in that because they don't feel they're being effective with either group. Hmm. So to wrap up our conversation, yesterday you posted online a petition a, that is really a plea, a public plea that is uh, oriented and going to go to the governor. Tell us a little bit about what that's about and how my audience and other people can engage that. Well, uh, in, back in August and then again in October, we submitted letters to the governor with our ideas of the basic components that needed to be in a plan, a statewide plan, uh, to support our educators and support what we called safe schools. 
Um, we've not heard anything from the governor on either of those approaches. We've, we've sent another letter to the governor um, uh, earlier this week, and then we've posted the pledge because we want the governor to understand the ideas that we're putting forth. These are not radical ideas. Wear a mask while you're in school. Let's look at these metrics that we have and let's make hard decisions around them. Let's not leave it up to the governing board. If you have more than 100 cases of COVID per 100,000 inhabitants in your school boundaries, then you need to move to hybrid. And if you have it for three weeks, you need to move to online. We have to safeguard our school employees. We have to safeguard our students. We're calling for um, the air conditioning uh, systems to be um, checked uh, and, and put a priority around that to, su to supply the districts with funding so they can purchase those filters so at least the air can move around um, mm -hmm. uh, more quickly. Uh, and we're asking anyone that reads this and they agree with the pieces of this plan to sign on to it, to let the governor know that there is support for safe schools and it is his responsibility to enact a plan that keeps not only our students safe, not only their families safe, but our educators and their families as well. We are gonna come out on the other side of this virus. We all know that's going to happen. The, what's gonna make it happen more quickly is if we do the things we need to do at home and we support our educators and we support all of our frontline workers with the resources they need to be able to, to have schools that are safe. That's how we move forward. And we are definitely asking the, um, uh, any, any of your listeners and anyone out there that's seeing our posts on social media uh, go to the address that you'll see on social media and, and sign on uh, to that pledge. Let's let the governor know that we do value safe schools. Well, I'm definitely going to urge my audience to do that. And thank you for your work and thank you for the work of the union. And we'll have you back on the show to update us how this is going and how you're working to protect your members. Thanks for being on the show, Joe. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. I hope I never get to a day when I just shrug at some mind-boggling, crazy proposal that endangers thousands of workers rather than get outraged every single time. So today, I'm incensed. These creeps, these grifters in the administration, on their way out the door, having already killed tens of thousands of people by intentionally downplaying the pandemic and botching the response at all levels, now want to sicken even more workers. They are now proposing a last-minute rule to increase the line speeds in poultry plants to 175 birds per minute. Think about that. On a good day, poultry workers would be stuck in some of the most dangerous working conditions in the country, 60% higher than other industries in terms of actual injuries. They would be at risk for broken bones lacerations, carpal tunnel syndrome, sprains, and other ergonomic injuries. Sometimes the birds were flying by so fast that workers would unintentionally injure each other because of how closely packed together they were because they used sharp cutting instruments. And during the pandemic, as I've talked about in several segments, thousands of these poultry workers have gotten sick and scores have died. This is a race issue as well. More than half of the poultry workers are black and Latinx, many living below the poverty line without adequate health insurance. So to give us some insight into this insane move by these grifters, let me bring in Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. Marcy is the co-executive director of the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. That's National Kosh. It's not shocking to me, Marcy, 
at this point to see two things happening. First of all, greed once again rearing its ugly head. And also you have these ideologues in the administration. As you know, you've had to deal with them now for the past four years on this issue. But it is kind of shocking to me that given the data that we know already during the pandemic, how many workers have been sickened and have died in these processing plants, that even the most ideological and crazy people and even the most greedy people would think, oh, what the hell, let's speed up the lines. When in fact, as we know, in order for people to be safe, actually on a good day, forget about the pandemic, but on a good day, those line speeds have always been too fast. And then you add on to that, as you know, the reality that what we need is actually slower line speeds and we have to have people less pushed together to make it safe. So what's your reaction when you first saw them trying to do this? You know, it's just when you think that you can't find one more thing that's that's so egregious, they come up with this, you know, let's let's in the 11th hour squeeze in whatever we can do to get more workers, you know, at risk of injury, sickness, and death, and just throw it in the mix. And, you know, as we know, workers literally risk their lives to keep us all fed. We've got Thanksgiving coming up next week. How can, you know, it's just disgraceful. It's outrageous. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about the Thanksgiving thing for a moment. Thanksgiving, actually, I, I, I may be actually uh, pilloried and sent into uh, the corner, but it's not one of my favorite holidays, partly because I'm a vegetarian. I actually shouldn't reveal that because people think I'm piling on the poultry industry because of that. But the truth is that, as you point out, um, this industry, again, going back to where I started, on a good day, and I use that in quotes, this was a very dangerous industry to work in. So give us a sense of what these line speeds accelerations, either percentage-wise, you know, what it was now, what they are planning on doing, you know, how it's going to affect the actual working lives of these workers on the line. Well, and to get back for a moment to your, to your point, I mean, even prior to COVID, a job in the poultry plant was one of the most dangerous industries. Injury rates were 60% higher than the average, you know, job that, that folks have. I mean, working at high speeds with sharp cutting tools, you know, there, there's amputations, all kinds of, of injuries and, and fatalities as we know it. So, and, you know, another, another thing that, that folks need to know is that, you know, that for, for longest time, workers have been crying out about this increase in line speed that is completely unnecessary. And the companies have retaliated over and over again for prohibiting workers from speaking out. And even worse, they create this point system so that workers who need to take time off in a time of COVID or if they've been injured, they get a demerit. So all of these things together really create just a deadly situation. And then in the time of COVID, it's, it's just that much worse. And I think we should give people a little bit of an insight inside the line. I mean, I remember reading stories about the poultry industry going back many years where co-workers sometimes unintentionally cut each other because they were so packed to, uh, close to each other. And these birds, these carcasses are flying by at very, very quick rates and they have to keep up with the speed and they have to make multiple cuts. So first of all, they get lots of carpal tunnel uh, injuries, which people are familiar from using a computer. It's the same sort of injury, much more severe when you're doing that repetitive in, in, in many, many, many times. And then 
they're literally reaching over and sometimes they'll reach over and grab a bird and they'll cut someone just by accident, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're packed, as you said, they're packed shoulder to shoulder, they're using sharp instruments and the line speed is forcing them to work at a very rapid pace. Now picture that on steroids during COVID mm. where they, you know, they're not practicing by any stretch social distancing. Plants are cold, so there's little airflow to prevent sort of the, the, the you know, elevate the transmission. Uh, plants are also loud, so workers have to shout, which of course is another uh, risk of spreading the, the, the infection. Um, and then, you know, with, with line speeds at that pace, you've got more and more people that need to be brought on, on board in order to keep up that level. And you're just talking about, you know, shoulder to shoulder. So we're really creating a situation that's just completely intolerable. Um, and let's make the point that you know well, this is a very, very profitable industry, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, these companies are doing, you know, many companies are doing better than ever in, in a time where, you know, people are just struggling to make ends meet. You know, the more than half of the folks that we're talking about that, that work in this are black and brown workers. They're folks that are, you know, making very little money. They don't have the sort of time off that, you know, that we you know, others can benefit from. And so we're really putting the squeeze on those that are, again, feeding us and, and making our lives, you know, pleasant and, and, uh, and what we're doing for them is just disrespectful. And especially now in this time of very high unemployment, when the economy is, has been crashing, yeah. workers are even more vulnerable, not just in this industry, by the way, probably in many industries that you are involved in and trying to protect workers, because even more so now, they're afraid of speaking up because they're afraid of losing their job. Yeah, and, and workers all over the country, uh, shockingly, have been speaking up there the, because they're crying out for help. They're being completely ignored by OSHA. On the contrary, OSHA is really putting them in a situation where they're worse off because those that do report complaints are being retaliated against. So in some ways, it's actually worse to have OSHA than, it's, than it is to not, because they're put in a situation where they're at risk of losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods. You know, so this is just you know, really creating a devastating situation. On the contrary, we are, you know, workers are taking action. They're, they're speaking up for their lives. We, there was just a recent uh, New York Times video op-ed by workers. Um, so workers are organizing more than ever. And we are hopeful that with the new administration, day one, the line speeds go back the way they were, more protections are put in place, and these workers are elevated to the so-called essential workers that they are, you know, deemed as a title. Mm -hmm. it, you led me to my next question. Clearly, the Trump administration is trying to, as it exits, even though the head of the administration, the president doesn't acknowledge that he lost yet. That's a whole nother topic. I couldn't resist putting that in there, though. They are trying to cram through all sorts of regulations in the final hours in lots of industries and on lots of subjects, whether it be criminal justice, worker safety, other labor issues. But your point is important. I want you to underscore it. Joe Biden and the new administration can reverse what they are trying to pass now. Am I correct about that? There is a lot that can be done, you know, naturally, you know, in the ideal world, you would, we would reform our labor laws in terms of, you know, making it super easy to organize for union. And I can go through the litany, but there's a lot that could be done at the executive level. And we're expecting um, and we'll be pushing a new Biden-Harris administration to ensure that 
the things that they have promised and more are accomplished right from the get-go. And, and line speed is one, is one of those top priorities um, in acting, of course, an infectious emergency disease standard, um, among other things that, you know, from the get-go need to be in place right away. Now, when they decide right now, the Trump administration folks, they're deciding to try to increase those line speeds. Can they do that automatically and say, this is starting tomorrow, or is there a period of comment so that effectively it would not come into place because they have so little time before the inauguration of the next administration, or am I wrong about that? Well, they're, they're sending it to OMB as, you know, to have a waiver approval from OMB. And that's the Office of Management and Budget. Let's say That's uh, right. The, Sorry, thank you. Yes. No acronyms here on this show. That's right. Um, and so basically what, what we're encouraging uh, the public to do, and certainly our members to do, is to, is to contact the Office of, of Management and Budget and to request a meeting uh, and to explain that this is something that should not be done um, and to try to, to you know, push off that process and to make sure that this doesn't take place. Um, so all, all hands need to be on deck to stop this from going forward. Certainly we can imagine that, um, you know, that, that this is something that uh, is gonna be pushed as hard as, as, as the corporations are seeking to have that done, but, but we need to be speaking out into stopping it from happening. Hmm. My final question is a, a more macro question to you. I bet you you are thrilled at the change of administrations given the work you do. And I know I've been engaged in many debates, especially on the progressive side, which come down to something like this, that there's no difference between the two political parties because of the, especially because of the control that corporate money has in both parties. But I remind people that it does matter a lot at those executive levels who runs the show because it will matter, and I'm going to go directly to your area of expertise, it will matter who is at the head of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, even though I know we would all like it to be even more better funded and have much more authority, have lots more inspectors, even more inspectors than the Obama administration had funded, it has to be a much more robust agency. I bet you you're looking forward to that change. Well, what I can tell you is um, I had, um, I actually got COVID over the summer. Oh, um, it, I only mention this because um, I had a bit of a breathing problem and I got some medication and I, I've been feeling better. But the few days before the election, I literally, I couldn't breathe. And uh, it is something to do with COVID and it's something to do with just the fear of continuing this dismantling of our nation's, you know, labor department in, in every form. Um, and uh, not just OSHA, but in every form of, of squashing of, of workers' voices, um, not to mention, you know, the immigration devastation. So um, I can tell you directly from my experience, uh, having worked with the previous administration, Dr. David Michaels at the helm is, you know, night and day to what we have had over the last four years. Um, we've had just had a complete dismantling of the agency and, um, you and know, to be clear, David Michaels was the head of the agency during the he Obama was the administration. Head of OSHA. That's right, the Occupational Safety and Health Agency. Um, and uh, again, it's not one person that that does it, but certainly, you know, you need strong people in the regions. There's a lot that goes into it, but you know, just there's example after example. He, um, you know, under his leadership, uh, OSHA was issuing uh, press releases when a citation was was given out. 
And that has a strong deterring effect. That's something that the Trump administration dismantled. Um, you know, strong collaborations in communities where workers and organizations were able to help workers navigate the inspection process that ended up going, you know, nowhere under the Trump administration. You know, example after example of, of protections that were dismantled, um, you know, standards that went, that were either, you know, sought to be reversed or didn't go forward. Uh, and COVID is just shining a spotlight on why we need an absolutely strong um, safety and health uh, infrastructure. Well, let's put a final fine point on this. It's not an exaggeration to say that more workers will be safe, fewer workers will die at work, and fewer workers will get sick because of the change of who will run the Occupational Safety and Health Agency, right? It is absolutely no exaggeration to say that workers have died in large numbers because of the dismantling of the Occupational Safety Agency over the last, well, the last several months alone. And that under a new administration, if, if what needs to be done is done with strong leadership, with the, um, you know, with a, a safety standard put in place, with reversing these terrible policies of, of line speed, among other things, we will save lives. Hmm. Uh, that, is, that is for sure. And not just in this industry, but throughout the entire industrial America, in factories, in offices, everywhere where people come to work, people get sick and die when you don't have somebody at the head of that agency. And certainly when the message is that corporations can do whatever they want, people are at risk. And that's going to hopefully change a little bit more, perhaps dramatically. You and I would probably have a conversation some other time about where what the ideal agency would look like, but certainly it'll be much different. Absolutely. And there are promises that have been made, and we are going to be holding the new administration to those promises. And that's a good way of ending, Marcy. When that administration comes into power, I'm going to have you back because I want our listenership, my audience, to keep track of this so that we know, in fact, that things are improving and hold those folks to feet to the fire. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. That'll do it for this week's broadcast. Thanks to my guests, Marcy Goldstein-Gelb and Joe Thomas. Our editor, as usual, is David Hebden. You can help support us in two ways. You can sign up for the show at our YouTube channel, Working Life with Jonathan Tassini. That helps us spread the show throughout the video world. And you can support us financially. You can do that in two ways. You can go over to workinglife.org. Look for the podcast tab. Follow our link to Patreon where you can sign up either on a one-time basis or a monthly basis at whatever level you can afford. Or if you're more comfortable, sign up and do that through ActBlue. We've partnered up with ActBlue. Look for us on ActBlue, the Working Life Network with Jonathan Tassini. And there too, you can sign up either on a one-time basis or a monthly basis. Hey, thanks for being with us again. Look forward to having you back next week. <laughs>